0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. And you can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got a great show for you today, including guests Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. As usual, on Monday, we'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus for the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about his favorite Chinese emperor, uh, or his... his, uh, Probably uh, the the one that did the least damage anyhow. And then Jim McTagg, former Barons Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. It is August the 15th, and on this day in 1961, two days after sealing off free passage between East and West Berlin with Bob Royer, East German authorities began building a wall, the Berlin Wall, to permanently close off access to the West. For the next 28 years, the heavily fortified Berlin Wall stood as the most tangible symbol of the Cold War, a literal iron curtain dividing Europe. The end of World War II in 1945 saw Germany divided into four allied occupation zones. Berlin, the uh, German capital, was likewise divided into f- occupation sectors, even though it was located deep within the Soviet uh, zone. <clears throat> the future of Germany and Berlin was was a major sticking point in the post-war treaty talks, and tensions grew when the United States, Britain, and France moved in 1948 to unite their occupation zones into a single autonomous enemy, the Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany. In response, the USSR launched a land blockade of West Germany in an effort to force the West to abandon the city— However, a massive airlift by Berlin and the United States, or Britain and the United States, kept West Berlin supplied with food and fuel, and in May 1949, the Soviets ended the defeated blockade. By 1961, Cold War tensions over Berlin were running high again, for East Germans dissatisfied with life under the communist system. West Berlin was a great gateway to the democratic West. Uh, between 1949 and 61, some 2.5 million East Germans fled from east to west Germany, mostly via West Berlin. By August 1961, an average of 2,000 East Germans were crossing in the West every day. Many of the refugees were skilled laborers, professionals, and intellectuals, and their loss was having a devastating effect on the East German economy. To halt the exodus to the West, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev recommended to East Germany that it close off access between East and West Berlin. On the night of August the 12th and 13th, 1961, East German soldiers laid down more than 30 miles of barbed wire uh, through the heart of Berlin. East Berlin citizens were forbidden to pass into West Berlin, and the number of checkpoints in which Westerners could cross the border was drastically reduced. The West, taken by surprise, threatened a trade embargo against East Germany as a retaliatory measure. The Soviets responded that such an embargo being answered with a new land blockade of West Berlin... When it became evident that the West was not going to take any major action to protest the closing, East German authorities became emboldened, closing off more and more checkpoints between East and West Berlin. On August the 15th, uh, they began replacing barbed wire with concrete, the wall East German authorities declared would protect their citizens from the pernicious influence of decadent capitalist culture. Um, (laughs) Group speak, unbelievable. The first concrete pilings were uh, up. In Bernauer Strasse and at the Potsdamer Platz. Sullen East German workers, a few in tears, constructed the first segments of the Berlin Wall as East German troops stood guarding them with machine guns. With the border closing permanently, each escape attempts by East Germans intensified on August the 15th. Konrad Schumann, a 19 year old East German soldier, provided the subject for a famous image in which he was photographed leaping over the barbed wire barium to freedom. During the rest of 1961, the grim and unsightly Berlin Wall continued to grow in size and scope, eventually consisting of a series of concrete walls up to 15 feet high. These walls were uh, topped with barbed wire and guarded with watchtowers, machine gun emplacements, and mines. By the 1980s, the system of walls and electrified fences extended 28 miles through Berlin and 75 miles around West Berlin, separating it from the rest of East Germany. The East Germans were also uh, uh, erected an extensive barrier along the 850-mile uh, border between East and West Germany. In the West, Berlin was, uh, w- the Berlin Wall was regarded as a major symbol of communist depression. About 5,000 East Germans managed to escape to the Berlin Wall in the West, but the frequency of successful escapes dwindled as the Wall was increasingly fortified. Thousands of East Germans were captured during the attempted crossings and 191 killed. In 1989, East German Communist regime was overwhelmed by the democratization sweeping across Eastern Europe. On the evening of November 9, 1989, East Germany announced an easing of travel restrictions in the West and thousands demanded passage through the Berlin Wall. Faced with growing demonstrations, East German border guards opened the borders, jubilant uh, Berliners, Uh, climbed on top of the Berlin Wall, painted graffiti on it, and removed fragments of souvenirs. The next day, East German uh, troops began dismantling the wall. In 1990, East Germans and West Germany were formally reunited. Think about that. Uh, This uh, whole thing lasted uh, about 28 years, was it? Pretty amazing that uh, all the efforts to take over the people and uh, to lock them down, the people ultimately prevailed, and it only took 28 years. Well, uh, early voting for Cahillia County's primary election began uh, this Saturday. The primary election is set for uh, Tuesday, August the 23rd. Uh, Winners of the primary election will move on to the general election on Tuesday the 8th, November the 8th. If they face challengers, that is. If you're voting in person on Election Day, voters need to be in line by 7 p.m. at the designated precinct, to find your precinct, I visit kayervotes.gov. That's kayervotes.gov. In order to participate in this election, you must have been registered by uh, July the 25th. And if you weren't, well, uh, you want to get registered now so you can vote in the general election on uh, November the 8th. That's kayervotes.gov. Uh, well, today marks the one year anniversary of the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan. On the eve of the anniversary, since the timeline nearly coincides with the deaths of 13 American soldiers in the capital city of Kabul explosion at the airport, retired four-star General Jack Keane said Afghanistan has subsequently devolved into a sanctuary of terrorism. While speaking with a, a... at outlet Fox News on Sunday, Keane said the very reason U.S. Uh, military forces went there, the very reason we stayed there for 20 years was to ensure that terrorists did not rise again, attack the American people, said Keane, and we're right back where we started. Keane characterized the uh, current state of Afghanistan as tragic and preventable. Who can forget? And apparently, uh, one of the brothers, the one that died uh, in Afghanistan, one of the 13, commits suicide on his grave uh, this weekend. It's very sad. Uh, p- poor leadership. Uh, but so much has gone on as since uh, President Biden has become president that it makes me wonder if it's not all on purpose, if he's simply trying to demoralize and defeat the American people's will. The Department of Justice allegedly took materials that contained privileged attorney-client communications in its raid last Monday, former President Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the claim raises new questions about the DOJ's tactics as well as doubts about whether the DOJ would be able to use any of the uh, seized materials in a hypothetical pr- uh, prosecution of the former president. The DOJ is apparently opposing the appointment of a special master, which is apparently pretty common, a judicial office off, official, who would conduct an independent review and decide which materials could be handed over to the government and which materials would be returned to the president, President Trump. The FBI FBI seized boxes containing records covered by attorney-client privilege and potentially executive privilege during its raid of uh, former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, and the Justice Department opposed uh, Trump's lawyer's request for appointment of an independent special master to review the records. (laughs) Unbelievable. The former president's team was informed of the boxes labeled A14, A26, A43, A13, and A33 as a set of documents all seen on the final page of the FBI's property receipt containing information covered by attorney-client privilege. The FBI seized uh, classified records from the Trump's uh, Palm Beach home during its unprecedented raid on uh, Monday, now, there's big question about whether they're classified or not. Apparently, the president, if, if he says they're unclassified, the moment he says it, they're unclassified. But nevertheless, uh, the FG, uh, FBI is operating under a uh, different set of premises. The attorney-client privilege protected under the right to counsel guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution means that almost any communications from a client to his attorney cannot be revealed the only exceptions to the rule are when the client is communicating with intent to commit a future crime or when the attorney is involved in the joint criminal or fraudulent endeavor. A confession of past crimes is still covered by the privilege. Similar questions about client privilege, or attorney-client privilege surrounded the FBI seizure materials in 2018 from an apartment and an office of former Trump attorney Michael Cohen A special master ruled that two-thirds of the materials concerning communications between Cohen and Trump were covered by attorney-client privilege and could not be used by the DOJ. So, uh, under that circumstance, they had a uh, a special counsel, a special master to rule. In this case, no special master. Last year, a federal judge ordered the appointment of a special master after the DOJ seized records from James O'Keefe's phone, the New York Times, which faced a defamation suit from O'Keefe, has been publishing legal memos between O'Keefe and his attorney shortly after the phone had been seized in a raid related to Ashley Biden's diary, prompting suspicions of leaks. Legal scholar jo- Jonathan Turley wrote that the request for an appointment of special master after Marlogo raid seemed reasonable, given the search warrant's broad scope. The request for a special master would seem reasonable, particularly given the sweeping language used in the warrant. It's hard to see uh, what material could not be gathered under this warrant. Speculation is mounted that the true purpose of the raid for presidential documents allegedly retained by the Trump uh, was to search for materials that might relate to the Capitol riot on January 6th, for which the Democrats want the DOJ to prosecute Trump. I see it differently. I believe Trump was holding unclassified documents, embarrassments uh, and embarrassing to the FBI and the DOJ. In fact, according to uh, journalist Paul Sperry, the federal agents involved in the Mar-a-Lago raid were under investigation by Special Counsel John Durham. How about that? Sources say the FBI agents and officials who were involved in the raid on former President Trump's home were the same counterintelligence division of the FBI that investigated Trump in RussiaGate. So uh, this all looks very suspicious to be, and uh, it's very unfortunate. Uh, more than uh, three dozen FBA agents descended on Trump's home on Monday and searched the compound for several hours. Unbelievable. It's really happening here in America. It is acting like a banana republic, isn't it? This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Naples, longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> 4541
0: welcome back to the Bob Harton show and now here's your host Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, providing programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting the website thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Good for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, Bob, as always.
1: Thank you, Mark. So uh, apparently uh, the FAT still exists against Salman Rushdie. He was attacked in western New York uh, this weekend. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
2: Well, clearly it still exists. The the Iranians claim they had no direct part, but there are clear reports that the person who did it was in touch with someone or some people from the Iranian Guard. So, you know, uh, it's hard to separate the two, obviously. Yeah. Um, and the reality is, the Iranians have done it in other places as well. So, you know, it's not only the Iranians. I mean, let's be honest. Um, while I don't want to attack Islam in general, you know, think back to the Danish cartoons, right? Right. That whole controversy because, you know, it's like. Uh, in both Christianity and Judaism, plenty of people make fun of the religions, right? Yeah. There's all sorts of satires about the religions in all sorts of ways that aren't anti-Christian and aren't anti-Semitic. But you know, but somehow, if it relates to Islam, it's a problem, at least among some fundamentalists.
1: Well, even just to make the image of the prophet... Is a is a, a reason for a FATMA. Now, this apparently, this was uh, back in the 80s when this was issued. This quote unquote It still exists. Apparently, the, the, whether there was contact or not, uh, this the order is still among all uh, Iranians. Or, Absolutely, or, or, yep. yep. They they have to they have to follow through. So it's it's pretty incredible and uh, very sad indeed
2: luckily it looks like he's going to pull through and he will be okay and all those good things but it was pretty touch and go from what i understand so um it's something you have to be worried about on top of all the other things don't forget what came out this past week also was an attempt to assassinate uh john bolton yeah. by the iranians yeah so it's this not a one-off incident there was more than one incident here and um it's well very hard to figure out how to deal with them. To be quite honestly, right? So we have, we have these we have negotiations to return to JCOPA. Leaving it was clearly one of the biggest foreign policy mistakes. But rejoining it seems problematic at this point. The Iranians don't really want to. We how can one believe anything the Iranians say at this point? And then on top of everything else, and it's another topic, but it's all related. The fact is, the Iranians are the one country in the world that are really helping the Russians in the war against Ukraine. Yeah, and of course that's uh, you know that's helping helping our enemy, so to speak, or enemies, or our friend's enemy, however we want to look at it at the moment. Right. So it's all very problematic. Um, you know, we've been trying to oust the regime since it came to power. Let's remember that since '79 or '78 when they the embassy and everything else we've tried to call for means and whatever else and that hasn't worked the um government or how we want to define it i wouldn't say it's very popular but it holds enough of the levers of power and it's willing to use uh, guns to basically kill all the opposition so it's very hard yeah and um, you know we've we've seen attempts and it hasn't gone anywhere um you know, we always say, well, the next generation is going to be. Well, we don't know. The next gen- right now, uh, Khomeini is really from the original revolutionary generation.
1: Um, well, i would but- re- repeat a, a point worth making, I think, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, uh, you can count on China and other countries to be rational actors. The uh, Iranians are religious extremists, and uh, you can't necessarily count on uh, rational thinking.
2: Right, yeah, absolutely. It's always an issue. Look, look. I think ninety-five percent of the time they're rational actors and do what they think is in the interest of the regime to survive mm-hmm. and be stronger and everything related to that. But it's that five percent that you have to worry about. Look, religion is a very bad thing in politics. I don't care what religion. I don't care what politics. I don't care what country. Because mm-hmm. the moment you have people who are true believers, and whatever their belief is, doesn't make a difference then rational thought becomes problematic, and rational considerations become problematic. So true believers, whether they're Muslims, Christians, or Jews, are very, very problematic. The only issue is that we have true believers of the Muslim variety in power, both in Iran and now, of course, also in Afghanistan. Right. So that's more problematic. There are no... You know, at the moment, at least, there are no Christian true believers who are in power. Some on the Supreme Court, maybe, or in Congress, but they don't run the country. Uh, in, in Israel, you don't have the the religious, not even in the government at the moment, so they clearly don't run the country. Uh, so, But when they do run the country or can run the country, it doesn't make a difference what the religion is. It's a real problem because anyone who thinks he's getting the word of God, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. is dangerous because how can you argue with the word of God?
1: Yeah. Unless they're able to set it aside, uh, in, you know, which we hope the Supreme Court members do and so forth. But nevertheless, it, it certainly has influence on their thinking for sure. No, it
2: clearly has influence. And clearly, I mean, the current Supreme Court seems to be less inclined to separate uh, religion and state. Let's put it that way. And I'm not even talking about abortion. For I'm talking about some of the other rulings they made this year about the question of the you know, the clear line between state and and religion. that was quite clear for many years, and the current Supreme Court has... Has grayed that line a little bit, especially their decision. I forgot which what what the the, the decision was. Well, it could be the they, football they, they, coach. The, um, the coach yeah. praying at the um, at the end of the game.
1: So, so. let's let's uh, let's move to. Uh, is this related at all? Syria has made strikes in Syria on apparently Iranian. Con- uh.
2: Right. Okay. So so it's related in the sense of talking about Iran trying to um, stir the pot. Iran is a big supporter of Hezbollah. Israel's been working very hard to do two things. One, to limit or not allow the Hezbollah to get uh, precision munitions. The Hezbollah has 100,000 rockets theoretically aimed at Israel. And second of all, to keep the Iranians themselves out of areas near the Israeli border. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Iranians have a long... um, uh, have a long series of reasons to be angry at the Israelis because of all the Israelis that have supposed, excuse me, all the Iranian scientists who have supposedly been killed by Israel and leaders of, of their nuclear program. And so Israel is trying to make sure that they don't have a chance to, um, to respond. And so last night was one of a series. Um, and so, um, you know, again, it's an ongoing situation.
1: Yeah, I, I, and related, uh, I, I read that uh, apparently uh, many of the Palestinians that have been killed have been killed by a friendly fire <laughs> from the Palestinians. Right, well
2: that was during, during the during the, the last little uh, incident war. I don't know what I'm going to quote, which was only a week ago. Yeah, um, almost all of the the civilians killed were killed by rockets that did not make it. It was Israel. Israel. There were only a couple of civilians that got were were killed as a result of being next to. Um, next to targets, very few. All the children that were killed were all killed because of uh, rockets that failed to, uh, either failed to ignite or ignited And the, the most well-known case, literally took off and then landed about uh, 100 yards away in the midst of a group of children.
1: Oh, my gosh. So, yes,
2: it's a tragedy. These kids were killed just the same. Yeah. Um, and there are no good solutions. You know, what can I tell you? It's a real problem.
1: Still, a, um, still a problem, and nothing on the horizon. So let's let's uh, move to Ukraine and uh, what's happening there.
2: Well, Ukraine. Yeah, you know, I almost could replate, repeat what I said last week because it's pretty much true. It's on one level a stalemate, but on the other level, the Ukrainians have been very effective now trying to cut off part of the Russian forces from their supplies, and they've done that now. And there are about a hundred thousand Russian soldiers that may soon find themselves without supplies and possibly surrounded. Hmm. So we'll have to see. In other words, I'm of the belief that the Russians are going to collapse at some point. That could be wrong, and I've said that before. Um, but I think before the end of this month, we're going to see some radical changes taking place there. Um, but we'll have to see. Um, you know, it's e- it's easier to be a defender than it is to go on offense. Yeah. So we haven't really – we've seen the Iranians do some incredible um, – raids i mean they they attacked a russian base in crimea destroyed a whole bunch of airplanes and took out munitions and everything else Uh, but to take an actual offensive and hold land that's a more complicated military uh, action and we'll have to see whether the ukrainians are capable of doing that in the next couple of weeks
1: what do what do you make of russians got go ahead ahead, no i was just asking uh, what zelensky seems to be uh, consolidating power uh, firing officials in the government and so forth Uh, what do you make of that
2: I just make that. I don't think it's so much consolidating power as much as finding people who are not competent and getting rid of them at this point. Mm. I mean, we don't really know. We're talking about internal. I, I, it doesn't seem to me that Zelensky is power hungry in terms of maintaining. I mean, right, right now, if elections were held in Ukraine, he'd probably get 95% of the vote, so he mm. doesn't have to worry about that. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a power move. I think it's more a question of ensuring um, the most competence. And there's always this fear and. Ukraine, the people being on the Russian payroll.
1: So what about the, uh, are there offensive weapons now being transferred into Ukraine? And is, what are the thoughts about uh, those being used and in, uh, just, uh, increasing the, uh, well, okay, escalating so, You war? know, again,
2: what do you define as an offensive weapon is one of the problems, right? In mm-hmm. other words, a <clears throat> missile that can hit 40, 50, 60, a hundred miles behind enemy lines. Is that an offensive ma- weapon or is it defensive to keep, uh, the Russians back? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the Ukrainian army is getting a little of both at this point. It's starting to get some Western armor. It's getting uh, certainly less of Western artillery. They've run out of Soviet artillery. They've had to basically switch over over the last two months from all of the artillery systems they've been, used to, they've been using to all Western artillery systems and Western shells and everything else like that. So that's, um, you know, that's to some extent moving it towards, towards offensive weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, listen, they're getting some offensive weapons. They should get more offensive weapons. Um, but I don't think it's the offensive weapons that's going to make a difference. It's their ability to actually carry out the offensive. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that really is what it comes down to and we'll we'll have to see. I mean, I'm in favor of training their pilots on using F-16s at this point. I don't see any reason why we're holding back. Um, but you know, it's a fine line, right? In other words, we want to give the Ukrainians as much help as possible we don't want to end up in a shooting war with the Russians. Right. So it's a very difficult line. So far I think it's been worked really quite well. And considering the fact that you're dealing with, with so many different countries that are helping the Ukrainians, the coordination and then getting you know interoperability, I mean, for years and years and years there was all this discussion in NATO that too much of the arms was not interoperability, in other words, the ability of... The Danes to use French munitions, et cetera. Think about it all those different ways, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you want to have in a battle is you don't want to have to worry. Well, we got to bring up food. We got to bring up, you know, special ammunition for the Danish forces versus special ammunition for the French forces, et cetera. From what I know, over the last ten to fifteen years, there's been a tremendous amount of progress made in ensuring the fact that the NATO weapons are interoperable between the different armies, Oh good. which means when it comes to the Ukrainians, it means they're also getting weapons that are, you know, they, they can use across the board that doesn't have to worry about, you know, munitions and things of that nature. So that's a biggie.
1: It is. Uh, parenthetically, uh, just reminded that also today is the day that uh, we withdrew from Afghanistan. It's an anniversary of that, uh, of that uh, one year ago today. So kind of a sad uh, kind of outcome from Afghanistan, and we still have... Thousands of people who've been stranded in Afghanistan, sadly, and uh, just make that point. Yeah, no
2: question. It's a sad, a, a sad day. Um, I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, if you think about the current war, it's thank goodness we're not in Afghanistan at the moment because we were depending partly on overflights over Russia in order to resupply our forces in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So think about the, what would be right now if we still had forces in Afghanistan.
1: So, Mark, um, so, we have a little bit of time left. I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about what's happening with energy around the globe, especially in Europe right now. I mean, Germany's—it looks like a, it's very dependent on Russia's supply of energy. Um,
2: right, but the good thing that's going on is, Germany uh, <clears throat> has finally decided they made a mistake when it comes to nuclear energy. Uh, Germany is going to not close the current nuclear plants it has that were scheduled to be closed. And there seems to be a push now to reopen some of the closed nuclear plants.
1: Good.
2: Uh, we're seeing that now in Japan, which is talking about reopening their nuclear plants. And look what's happening in the United States, too. I mean, uh, the, energy, the um, climate energy bill that passed has more money for nuclear energy than ever allocated in American history. So hmm. I, wasn't I,
1: think, hmm? I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of money, a lot of money there for nuclear energy, both for modernization and to keep plants going, and a whole series of different things. Um, so there's a realization that, hey, you know, we can argue about climate for put it on the side for two seconds. But assuming you're worried about the climate, nuclear energy does not, you know, does not warm the planet, does not heat, and it doesn't require strip mining or anything else that's available in almost infinite supply. Yeah. And, um, yes, you always have to be worried. You know, I understand people who are scared of nuclear accidents, but, my goodness, people are getting killed, you know, riding on the freeway more. Well, let me put it this way. Many times, you know, thousands and thousands of times more people die in cars every year than get exposed to any sort of negative effect of nuclear energy. Right. So, you know, I, I think that was one of those things where it's easy to be scared, Right.
1: I guess the only the 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 only issue I would be concerned about is the uh, uh, getting rid of the nuclear waste after it's after it's been used. The uh, former uh, majority leader of the Senate uh, uh, was, I guess, a resident of Nevada, and uh, right. put, put the be blocked, I believe.
2: Yeah, right. Uh, so, listen, that's the problem. We need to solve that problem clearly. Uh, some of the new plants, the, there are a whole series of newer plants that that aren't online yet. They're just starting work on. A lot of it, I believe, actually, Bill Gates invested in, were modern, completely redone nuclear reactors, and they have much less waste. Now, if you don't forget, the basic design of nuclear, nuclear reactors being used in power plants is over 100, over 70 years old. Mm-hmm. It's the first, you know, basic design of, of nuclear power plants. Remember, the first submarine, nuclear submarine was 1954, and not a lot has changed until the last 10 years, when suddenly there's been a lot of investment. And trying to reimagine uh, how to do this more efficiently with less less danger, both danger of accidental explosions or whatever, and also less waste. And then we have the last part, which is fusion, where there are at least fifty companies right now, startups working in fusion, plus a big project at the jointly by the United States and the European Union. And of course, that'll be the you know the ultimate solution is if we can come up with uh, a way of uh, of t- turning you know fusion. Fusion-based power.
1: Yeah, you know, I, in fact, uh, one one of my uh, real desires uh, on my wish list would be to have nuclear reactors that could be actually used in a home, where uh, they could, you could power your home for a year or more on on. Uh, in other words, getting rid of the power grid is what I'm talking about. It right. Would be, be well,
2: a, that would be a few a mini fusion reactor because mm-hmm. uh, nuclear, regardless of what you uh, what you do, nuclear reactors are still. Um, Still dangerous, let's put it that way. Fusion, yeah. theoretically, is not dangerous. It has no byproduct except I think hydrogen is the only byproduct from a fusion reactor. Huh. So um, we can hope for that. I I wouldn't hold your breath for your house, maybe your grandchildren's house, maybe.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, it would be a wonderful solution to a very, very serious problem that just because it's not front of mind all the time, it, it, it certainly is a threat. All
2: right, The grid is a big big issue. That's one of the other things that's in the, in the money in the environment, Bill, is, is a lot of money to improve the grid, which is really important. Again, our electric grid was designed 100 years ago, literally, mm-hmm. in the 30s and 20s, and it's time to reimagine so many things. You know, we, we, on one hand, we have the most advanced technology in so many different ways, and in other areas, we're basing ourselves on technology that's almost 100 years old.
1: So true, so. and so true. And uh, you know, we're kind of to use an analogy, we're kind of like uh, in a rock fight uh, with living in a in a glass house. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's a good one. I like that.
1: Very much so. Again, Mark Schulman, a founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you'll visit uh, HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages. Mark, always appreciate your so well-informed commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: For more of the Bob Harden Show. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples only Vitality and Longevity Practice, where acupuncture, medical massage, Energy healing and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com, or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. you have questions about your retirement? AmeriPrize Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of AmeriPrize Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratispell Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services LLC, a registered investment advisor.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host. Bob Hartin.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new refreshing social networking platform. And you can found out, find out more and download the app by visiting the website ChoiceSocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Baron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
3: Okay. We focus on young people in our work, uh, people of uh, high school and college age. Our purpose is to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, private property, free enterprise, and personal character. And we do that through our very robust website, fee, fee.org and through personal events all over the country and sometimes abroad.
1: You know, are, are things kind of opening up now that apparently the uh, CDC just made a new ruling on uh, the uh, masks and all and, uh, vaccines and so forth? Is that going to free you up to do more in-person events?
3: Yes. In fact, uh, that has begun already. We are doing more in-person events. Uh, we do a great deal of online events because uh, they've been so well-received, so, mm-hmm. uh, but the in-person things are indeed coming back.
1: That's good to hear. So I just encourage our listeners, if you have a young person in your life, uh, high school or college age... Terrific organization. Uh, Please introduce them to fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, you wrote a piece that I found so interesting because I don't know much about what's happened in China. I don't know Chinese history at all, but the the column you wrote is a surprising act of contrition that made Han Wudi arguably China's greatest emperor, despite his flaws. Maybe you can tell us about it.
3: Okay. Uh, China had at least 158 emperors, Uh, over time. And of course, some of them are quite forgettable. But Han Wudi is uh, one of the more memorable ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, He served uh, in that capacity for 54 years. And that was a length of time that would not be exceeded for another 1800 years. He was emperor of China in the uh, first uh, century B.C. uh, And uh, for the first 52 years, Uh, He ran the show like uh, FDR, you might say, Franklin Mm -hmm. Roosevelt, in the sense that he had a lot of uh, infrastructure and and make-work projects and that kind of thing, spent a lot of money. Uh, He also had uh, a lot of uh, wars, so he was uh, draining the treasury of the the country for all sorts of uh, spending purposes. But in his 52nd year, with only two more years to live, uh, he issued a very famous apology to the Chinese people saying, sorry, I've, I've I've been a lousy emperor and I've spent us into bankruptcy and I'm going to stop doing that. And lo and behold, for the remaining time, he was emperor. He actually did reverse policy. He really meant what he said. Um, but otherwise, he's kind of the run of the mill Chinese uh, emperor, always trying to expand the, the, the size of the country and sending armies abroad to do it.
1: Wouldn't that be refreshing to have somebody, FDR, whoever it might be, <laughs> wake up one morning and say, you know what, I screwed things up pretty miserably. <laughs> yeah.
3: It would be very refreshing. And so many of them really owe us an apology for what they've spent, or the dumb decisions they've made, or the payoffs to their friends they've orchestrated. Um, but it would be nice if uh, somebody had enough character to come forward and say, "I'm sorry about that. Won't do
4: it again."
1: So I, you know, <laughs> one underscore here. Now, Chinese got a China has a long history of uh, dictator rules, emperors, and so forth. Uh, you've characterized uh, this individual, the uh, Woody uh, Han Woody as being the the best of the worst so to speak i mean the the characteristics of these uh, emperors one after another has been pretty much uh, be a a despot uh ruling by fiat
3: yeah yeah hanwudi was no exception in that regard because uh until his last couple of years he he was uh, not all that different from the emperors uh, uh that would come or the few that came before him uh, he spent a lot of money on on uh, the arts. You know, if you look around, you'll find a lot of politicians like to do that. I think it because I think it's because they, it makes them look sophisticated and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, you know, uh, government subsidies for the arts uh, go way back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he and he doubled the size of the empire by force of arms. He uh, st- stretched it to the Korean Peninsula in the east to the jungles of Vietnam in the southeast and to the steppes of Asia in the west. So he doubled the size of China uh, while he was uh, in power.
1: You also say, uh, cite the, uh, he, he loved infrastructure projects.
3: Yeah, uh, boy, don't politicians go for that. They, uh, <laughs> because they know that the people want to, want uh, good roads and things like that. So they, the politicians promise it and they show up uh, for the ribbon cutting and And they put a lot of fanfare into the construction of such projects. Uh, They don't spend as much time in the maintenance. That's not as sexy, I guess. (laughs) Uh, You don't have a ribbon-cutting ceremony for a bridge repair um, like you do when it was first built. But he spent uh, a lot of money on expensive canals and dikes and bridges and uh, the famous Silk Road. Hmm. was begun under his administration
1: so interesting Uh, by the way an observation i've uh, appreciate what your comments on this but is for the most part if uh, you're an entrepreneur if you want to start something if you get a patent you're going to work like heck to make it successful but usually politicians they're more interested in the fanfare of opening something and starting something they and very little follow through in trying to make it work if it well yeah
3: that's right they walk away they create a bureaucracy uh to sort of t- uh, tend to it uh, the department of public works you know but nobody thinks of uh the department of public works anywhere as like uh, a paragon of efficiency and <laughs> And activity and that kind of thing. It's like, oh, here come the orange cones again. How long are they going to be up? <laughs> Ancient China had its counterpart
1: to that. Absolutely. Sandy, any comments about the currency or the coinage of the day?
3: Yeah, it was mostly copper at that time. And because the Chinese people believed that heaven was round and the earth was square, their copper coins were round with a square punched out in the middle. Uh, which is uh, an interesting distinguishing feature of Chinese currency. Uh, but the copper content uh, was diluted over time by cheaper metals just so the government could uh, uh, generate more coinage to sp- to spend even more. So the- they had a kind of inflation from the way they depreciated their currency just as we do it with our paper.
1: Yeah, I'd just like to read uh, what you put in your column. Since I was enthroned, and this is now uh, on Woody, uh, since I was I was enthroned I've been behaved recklessly and made life miserable for the people. <laughs> what, a yeah. conf- what a confession. <laughs> I feel regretful for what I've done. From now on anything that harms people and wastes state to state resources must be stopped.
3: Yeah, he did that in his 52nd year as a, as emperor and I, when I first read that I thought man if I was a Chinese person at that time, I think I would have said, "Now you tell us." <laughs>
1: <laughs> it took you fifty-two years to figure it out, right?
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I wonder what I wonder what induced uh, the revolution. I wonder if we had some sort of experience or uh, epiphany, and how it all happened. But uh, that's pretty amazing.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, rather unusual in history because politicians usually don't admit to their mistakes and apologize.
1: Absolutely. Again, Larry Reed, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Again, fee.org is the website, F-E-E.org. Larry, just generally appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Jim is uh, retired as Washington's bureau chief in, uh, in the Beltway. He also has now moved to Pennsylvania, and he's writing murder mysteries. Uh, his first was... Uh, Follow the leader. The second was Shake the Money Tree. And his third just came out. Uh, no problem, it's called. We're going to do that and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. come back to the Bob Harton show and now here's your host
1: Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best and also building a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples is going to be absolutely fabulous. And you can find out more and get tickets by visiting the website Gulf Shore Playhouse. Dot org. We have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of many books. He's, uh, his last three murder mysteries, as I mentioned before the break, uh, follow the leader, shake the money tree and no problem. Jim, thank you so much for joining us.
4: It's a pleasure, uh, Bob, I'm here in Pennsylvania where for the past few days, the weather has been magnificent. Yeah. Uh, no humidity except today it's raining, but the, uh, uh, you know, we had been uh, baking like we were in an air fryer for a couple of weeks. So um, it's marvelous to see a hint of, sp- of fall in the air.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. And, of course, I understand how the heat can uh, <laughs> really be. But I, I, yesterday I was watching the Red Sox play. They're 74 degrees and no humidity. It's just beautiful up there. So
4: Yeah, and I'm reading, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to remind your listeners, I'm a never-trumper, but I'm c- consider myself a clinically detached person, you know. So I uh, I withhold judgment until all the facts are in, and I know a lot about uh, classified documents, not uh, as a journalist, because uh, I wrote a book in uh, back in 2011 called Crapshoot Shoot Investing about the flash crash on Wall Street mm-hmm. and the, co- the collapse of our electronic markets. And, 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 and you know, the book traced, like, how did we get to a market that was dominated by robots uh, that, that we really can't uh, police? So in the course of that, I came across a congressman from the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He, he was a Democrat from California named John Moss who conducted the first investigation of Wall Street uh, back in the the late 60s, early 70s, first investigation since the uh, 1929 crash. But Moss, it it turned out, was also the father of what we call the Freedom of Information Act, Hmm. which as a a journalist, I use that constantly. Uh, You send in a form, it's called a Freedom of Information Act request, to try to get the uh, documents from the uh, government so that you can keep tabs on on what the bureaucrats are up to and and they would do everything in their power to thwart your freedom of information act requests sure but uh, Moss in nineteen fifty five was on a three man committee in Congress examining the federal government, and he was just appalled that bureaucrats were stamping the most innocuous documents as top secret or classified so they couldn't be held accountable for their failures (laughs) you know so so uh, he waged an 11-year effort to get this freedom of information act passed Mm. and and the democratic party for the most part opposed it Every executive uh, branch of the government said that it would be a disaster and, and, and destroy the operations of the federal government. And uh, a young Republican uh, congressman named Donald Rumsfeld mm-hmm. joined up with Moss and and, and helped him get this uh, Freedom of Information Act passed. And, of course, the federal government did not collapse. So I, I raised this.
1: Well, you know, maybe it did collapse. <laughs> I'm being yeah, facetious. No,
4: I, I raise this because the documents at Mar-a-Lago, I mean, I mean as you read this story about the uh, Attorney General raid and, and the top secrets and the classifieds, uh, it raises a lot of questions. I mean, you have to withhold uh, judgment. You know, as a journalist, I don't think that Donald Trump should have taken the documents uh to a place where, where journalists in the future cannot have access to them to see what his administration was up to. Number one, but number two, uh, when I hear the government constantly talking about classified and top secret, I remember John Moss, the government's penchant for stamping everything classified, and and I wonder, you know, how much of this is hyperbole uh, aimed at trying to nail Donald Trump for some, you know, uh, fake uh, violation of government policy.
1: Yeah, so just a quick follow-up question on this, Jim. I'm happy you brought it up. Uh, first of all, uh, I think I read someplace that uh, now government agencies, not necessarily federal, but government agencies are beginning to charge for FOIA requests. Have you well, heard yes, that?
4: they have. I mean, they're— if you're if you work for a uh, newspaper or a, or whatever a bona fide journalistic operation is you can apply for a uh, pass on the fee uh but for the average citizen uh the fees can be uh um, Monumental. Of course, and it could
1: drive some uh, some companies out of business if they say so we can't afford to even uh, apply for the FOIA uh, request because uh, the, the fees are so high. So that seems to be an obstruction to what the intent of the law was.
4: Yeah, and also, for some reason, the financial regulators have huge loopholes because they managed to get Congress to give them a, a multitude of exemptions to Freedom of Information Act requests so that uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission and uh, ancillary uh, agencies uh, generally do not respond to uh, requests from the press for Freedom of Information Act requ- uh,
1: requests, yeah, so which is one
4: reason why, Why you know, another reason why not to trust the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and the corporate filings you see when you're, when, when you're trying to uh, research a company.
1: Yeah, so a couple of points. Uh, first of all, uh, my understanding is that when the president says these documents are unclassified, they are immediately unclassified. There's no process or paperwork or anything like that. And apparently he did that with the uh, documents in his, uh, in his home. Any comments?
4: Well, yeah. You know, I read this. I'm not a legal expert. I read a story in the Sunday New York Times to, that said, in effect, that, that there's no real case law. And that the president apparently can snap his fig- fingers or wave his wand like Harry Potter and unclassify the uh, classified. So it sounds like the legal ground that the uh, attorney general has uh, stepped upon is pretty shaky. Yeah. So, so when you know, and the New York Times is no friend of Donald Trump. So I'm, I was surprised to see. Uh, that kind of article in that paper.
1: Another thing is that a lot of speculation, of course, as to why this raid took place, and it would be great if they had unsealed the affidavit so we could really find out what this is all about. But apparently uh, one theory of the, of the case is that uh, the FBI is concerned about what's in those documents because it's going to reveal a lot about what happened with uh, uh, the uh a Mueller investigation and all these types. Apparently the same crew from the FBI that were responsible for the Mueller investigation, as well as, of course, Mar-a-Lago. So uh, apparently the theory is that they're trying to hide misdeeds of the past.
4: Yeah, I don't buy that because I think the most interesting thing I've read, and it was in the, uh, the search warrant, was that the FBI originally, when they learned that there were more documents at Mar-a-Lago, asked the Trump organization to put a stronger padlock on the door. (laughs) So, you know, so that told me that James Bond had not registered as a guest at Mar-a-Lago and was trying to photograph everything in the uh, closet. Well, and and, and apparently
1: apparently this, uh, go ahead, Jim, I'm sorry.
4: Oh, no, it just told me that the FBI didn't fear, like, the, the Russians or the Chinese were in there with crowbars. They just said, you know, put a bigger padlock on the door. That doesn't sound like urgently trying to protect uh, documents that might be inimical right. to the
1: FBI. And, and the other thing is that uh, apparently, uh, the, of course, our Sixth Amendment guarantee us the fact that uh, any kind of investigation like this is going to be targeted or any kind of confiscation of materials— and apparently the the uh, warrant requested everything that uh, in the pre- president's possession that related to his presidency between the day he was, uh, January the 20th, uh, 2017, and the day he left office in 2020. That seems pretty broad. In fact, it seems to violate his Sixth Amendment rights.
4: It's a fishing expedition. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't like Trump. I I derog- you know, my derogatory nickname for him is uh, President Line My Pockets. You know, I saw him trying to monetize uh the the office constantly. That's just the nature of the beast. Um but on the other hand, these investigations, like even the 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 ones in New York state are a joke. They're just so uh it's the misuse of uh, the federal law enforcement for political purposes
1: and, and it's no, just so, so obvious so I would I, I would just emphatically disagree with the fact that he's trying to line his pockets I think what's refreshing to uh, people who support Trump is that they feel he's the one guy in uh, recent political history that's actually trying to return power to the people so uh, And uh, not looking out after his own interests, like I would suggest the current president is, uh, unfortunately. But nevertheless, your point is well taken, Jim. Jim McTagg again, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of uh, Follow the Leader, Shake the Money Tree, and his latest book, uh, No Problem. Jim McTagg, M-C, capital T-A-G-U-E. Jim, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. Seat Motley, the founder and president of the government. And my wife, Linda, will be with us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.